On JPAM's Closer Look, we will be talking to leading authors published in the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management on timely topics such as healthcare, education, immigration reform, and economics. Hi, and welcome to another edition of JPAM's Closer Look podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Amy Ellen Schwartz, who is the Daniel Patrick Moynihan Chair in Public Affairs and Professor of Economics and Public Administration and International Affairs at Syracuse University's Maxwell School. Welcome, and thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're really excited to have you and excited to talk about your forthcoming article in the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management, JPAM. This article is co-authored with your colleague at Syracuse, Mika Rothbart, and the article has a great title, I would say. The title is Let Them Eat Lunch, The Impact of Universal Free Meals on Student Performance. The title is pretty instructive of what you're talking about, but for our listeners who are not familiar with meal programs in schools, why don't we start by just setting some definitions about what do we mean by universal free meals? So in lots of schools, in fact, virtually all schools, if a child's family is low income, participates in SNAP or TANF or some other program like that, they get free meals at schools. But kids who are not poor, who do not qualify, have to pay to eat school meals. So they go to the cafeteria, they may have to pay cash or they may have an account, but they have to to pay for those school meals. The idea of universal free meals is to take away those fees. It just makes school lunch and school breakfast, where it's offered, free for everybody, regardless of their income. And that's universal free meals. Okay. And what is the sort of rationale for shifting to this universal free meal program? Some of the universal free meal support and enthusiasm comes from folks who are are worried that kids who are eligible for free lunch under the traditional system don't participate, they don't take advantage of the program because of stigma. So they worry that creating a targeted program that is only uh, provided to poor kids shows them as poor to their colleagues, to their classmates. And so kids don't participate. So the idea is that a targeted program that provides free meals only to poor kids identifies the poor kids as poor. And so those kids don't participate. So they're they're hungry, they have inadequate nutrition, and it's because it's of the targeted nature of this. So one argument for universal free meals is that it will lead to poor kids who need the free meals, taking advantage of it and using it. Another argument for it is that the kids who are not eligible for free meals under the traditional meals service, many of those kids are pretty poor too. And they need free meals. They need support. They're not getting enough nutrition. They're hungry, but we're not supporting that. Now, why would that happen? One of the reasons is that parents may be unwilling or unable to fill out the forms that make their kid eligible for free lunch. So could be they're undocumented, could be they're afraid of it, you know, they're immigrants. So there's that 
group. Another thing worth thinking about is that the poverty line is a federal poverty line. So that in, if you live in a high cost area, like say New York City, which is the location for this particular study, the line that distinguishes the poor and the not poor is at a, an income level that is not that well to do. And so some folks have argued it's a good thing because it, it improves nutrition and food security for these kids who are maybe near the line. A final reason, which I think is important for you know the JPAM crowd maybe, is that in many schools, they're actually not collecting very much money. So this paper is about universal free meals, but in, again, in New York City, the context of the study, they already had universal free breakfast. I'd written an article about it some years ago. One of the reasons they went to universal free breakfast was it just wasn't worth it financially to collect the money they were collecting for breakfast. Yeah, because that's a costly endeavor. It can be. You know, you need to have somebody collect money, process payments, save the money, take it to the bank. And if you are not, you know, maybe you could have a, an electronic system. You know, they, there's more nuanced and complicated ways to do it. But you could be holding a bag of quarters and having to pay somebody to collect a bag of quarters, put it in a safe, take it to the bank, and, and so on. Right, right. All three of those reasons make sense to me, and it seemed to be sort of intuitive reasons to at least try this universal free meal approach. So why don't you tell us, what are the big results here? What do you find? Did the universal free program let more kids eat lunch? Actually, it was the neatest thing since sliced bread. Universal free meals was adopted in New York City schools under uh, Provision 2, which allowed them to have some schools adopt and not others. So in this case, I just want to be clear, we're looking at the schools that adopted universal free meals at, at a school level. But what we found was that when a school adopted universal free meals, on average, test scores went up. Test scores went up in mathematics. They went up in English language arts. They went up for the poor kids, that is, those who would have been eligible individually for free lunch. And it went up among kids who were not poor, that is, who would not have had free lunch. We saw increases in participation in school lunch by both groups as well. And it looks to us like these are credibly causal. These are credibly causal impacts. So we think this thing worked as well as could have been expected and better. That's great. And why do you think it worked? Do you have any ideas about why it worked? Or were these results unexpected in any way? Well, I think what was unexpected to me was the, the magnitude and the robustness of this. We saw, as I said, in, you know, impacts in everywhere we looked in on test scores. So I think it works for, I want to say, a really basic reason. Hungry kids don't learn as well. This seems to me to be fundamental, you know, the common sense appeal of it, something every parent has seen, something we've seen in ourselves. You know, hangry kids don't learn. So it could also be that the school lunch is more nutritious than what they would have been having at home. We don't have evidence on that, but it's possible. It seems to me that the most important likely explanation is that 
Kids were hungry, they were distracted, their lunch was insufficiently nutritious, whatever they were having, and that addressing that led to them being more able to pay attention, concentrate, and do well in school. Yeah, that seems very intuitive and plausible. So it seems like this program was implemented fairly well. It had big positive impacts on on student achievement across the board. It likely led to nutritional improvements across the board, regardless of, of students' household income. So in hindsight, this looks good, but I imagine that it was somewhat controversial to adopt in the first place. Is that right? And if so, what were the critiques or or arguments against implementing this type of policy? So I think policies of this kind attract criticism from people who don't like social welfare policy expansion period. And that's a taste preference. But I think a, a meaningful critique, a meaningful concern was that folks worried that it would lead to increases in obesity. Certainly a question with the adoption of of breakfast. And the argument goes something like, like this. Kids' lunches that they bring from home are better than what the school lunch would be. And if you give them free lunch at school, what they'll do is eat that instead of the better lunch that mom or dad were preparing for them at home. Or they will eat two. They will eat what mom or dad sends and school lunch. And there's a little bit of evidence out there that, you know, that was credible that made you think, hmm, this might be a concern. So we looked at this. We looked at impacts on obesity, overweight, and we see no evidence at all that points to a deleterious effect. No evidence it did something to increase obesity or overweight or BMI. We saw some hint that it it might have an improving effect, but we couldn't really nail that down. That's for a future study. Okay. You mean like in terms of malnourishment? No, that we saw some reduction, some hints of like either reduction in obesity or reduction in overweight, but it was really just like hints of it. Okay. Yeah, I was curious about the other end of the spectrum. Are there kids who are legitimately underweight or malnourished by some clinical definition that their health improved as a result of this program? So we don't have data on on malnourishment. We would be able to peek at, you know, were you particularly low BMI? We didn't really see meaningful effects there. Okay. But that is a pretty small group. Yeah, I was going to say, you probably wouldn't even have power to detect those sort of effects, I guess. Well, maybe not in this, but in a follow-up study, we are going to be looking at that. Because they expanded the program and went citywide. And so now, you know, after the period of this study. And so our hope is to pick up these other things, but we haven't been able to do that yet. Not in this study. And so it sounds like the school's So schools and the federal government are both subsidizing this program. They're paying for it. I mean, who pays for these things? Schools. And schools are are funded by the federal government, the local government, the state government. So you're taking the user fee out of it. Do local taxpayers pay more in uh, taxes? I don't know. Good question. I expect not that much. (laughs) Okay. Good question. That's not this study, but we should be just clear about the magnitudes we're talking about here. You know, 
kids are paying something like, if you're paying for your full price lunch, it could be a dollar. There are 185 school days. So a school is potentially giving up $185 to feed the kid the whole year. They then do not have to run after his parents or her parents to fill out forms, collect money, all of that. So there's certainly got some administrative savings. Plus, you get the big benefit of the test score gain, which is a big benefit. Absolutely. And well, the way I think of this is this is a drop in the bucket compared to what some might have argued were other interventions that would lead to improvements in kids' academic performance. Yeah, I guess maybe that's what I was getting at. Like if we were to compare this to, say, a class size reduction program, this must be cheaper. By a mile. So like New York City public school spending is, let's say, $25,000 a kid, say, 20, 25, depending on your year, which one we're comparing it to, $185 compared to that. Yeah. So there's pretty good bang for your buck here. I think so. You know, you hate to have a competition between worthy things, but you know, with a with a budget constraint, this seems to me to be something that's um this is a good value. Neatest things since sliced bread. So I wanted to talk a little bit more specifically about the stigma and how this stigma affect might vary across different schools or, or in other districts that might be considering this type of program. My thinking is that the stigma effect would be biggest in schools where there's relatively few kids taking the free lunch, just because there's fewer kids doing it, so they're going to stand out more. Is that a reasonable way to think about it? And if so, were you able to, to examine how the effect might vary across different schools with different socioeconomic student bodies? So again, not in this study, but it is what we're trying to do by looking at New York State's adoption. I think this is a really important question, and I don't know the answer. It's possible that it'll really work well in those cases. That's where it's going to be most expensive. So just to put this all together, you will be giving up the most revenue in user fees in the school's with relatively few kids who were eligible for free or reduced price lunch. But that also might be where the stigma affects, yeah. And coming back to this idea of of the kids who are not eligible, but maybe should be eligible or or would benefit from being eligible. In your study, you are able to look at, at the effect on lunches purchased. Is that right? Yeah. And so can you say a little bit about like how many more lunches were taken at school as a result of the program. Whether you have a bigger effect in those is, is just, it's unknown. My suspicion is that there's a bunch of things that are at play here, and we're going to have to sort our way through them. So one of the big questions is, is about what are these kids doing for lunch otherwise? So I had said earlier that in many schools, the kids who are not eligible for free lunch are not that well-to-do. And I think that's true in lots of school districts where the, the you know, not poor enough for free lunch is, is sort of cutting the line. It's placing a, a distinction such that lots of the not free lunch eligible kids are in families that are not that well-to-do. And so some of what's going to matter is who that group is. 
So you're in a, a school district or a school in a high-cost part of the country where the families are not that well-to-do. That's where I would expect to see the biggest impacts. But we'll see. Well, yeah, the statewide study sounds fascinating, and I look forward to seeing it. Yeah, me too. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're in the middle. But, yeah. but let, me, let me say one other thing. What we didn't study, and it would be really interesting for somebody to do, is the school culture aspect. Also possible there are real differences between big schools and small schools. Schools organize differently. You know, some schools have, you know, meals in the classroom. This study really focused on kids in middle school. You know, there are elementary schools where kids eat in the classroom and they do all sorts of different things. I imagine there's the effect is going to matter in different school cultures, but I, not my expertise. But it'd be great for somebody to do that work, you know, qualitative work. Yeah, no, I think there's a lot of dimensions where sort of qualitative or ethnographic type research would really be interesting here. We're just primary data collection yeah. in school cafeterias. Yeah, weighing the trash cans after lunch or something. This is a really fascinating set of results here. The universal free lunch program increased the lunches eaten by everybody, whether they were eligible or not prior to the program. It increased the test scores of everybody, whether or not they were eligible prior to the change. The way we think about this is that these non-poor kids increased participation in school lunch by about 11 percentage points. So that's about one extra school lunch every 10 days, every other week. And it's smaller for poor kids. It's about five percentage points for kids who would have been eligible. So I I did want to just come back and and add one more thing I I think I should have said uh, more clearly. One of the questions I get about this all the time is, isn't it true that that the lunch that you get from home is better. I think that varies really widely. What varies is both about what people send for their kids, but also whether or not it is the lunch that we imagine. What I'm fond of saying is, you know, you're imagining poached chicken breasts with fresh snap peas and organic applesauce or whatever it is, you know, hummus and pita chips or whatever it is. But when I give this talk, I'll sometimes flash up a picture of what a lot of kids really want to take from home. And that's a Lunchable. That is a pre-packaged lunch that you buy in the refrigerator section of your local supermarket. Processed meat. Some processed meat, some crackers, maybe a candy bar, a juice box, uh, something. That's what kids want. They're not inexpensive. It's also the case in New York City and other places where kids can buy lunch on their own. One of the reasons we looked at middle school kids is they have some autonomy. So if you look at even younger kids, they have less autonomy. And I think everybody thinks kids trade lunches, they swap, all sorts of things. So we have an idea of what we think kids are eating, but we don't really... We hope that's what they're eating, but we don't really know. Yeah. Now, I mean, that said, there are people out there who go out and take pictures of what's on kids' plates, and and there's a a world of nutrition folks who measure plate waste, and they know far better than I do. It would be fantastic if somebody wanted to do that study, but what happens after you make school lunch free? 
Again, completely different study. One thing that didn't change, which was a little surprising to me, was you didn't find an effect on absences or on school attendance. And I say I was partly surprised because I thought that might have been a mechanism for the test scores and also for kids who are hungry now coming to school to get lunch. This is a, an extra incentive to come to school. Do you have any sense of, of why you didn't see an effect on absences? You know, we kept looking because I thought we would too. All I can say is, you know, it's possible that this, like the weight outcomes, just take longer to set in. You know, or maybe it's just not a strong enough incentive. So increased attendance is, is not the main mechanism. We think the mechanism is more that students are now just better able to focus on learning rather than having their stomach grumbling or, you know, worrying about what they're going to eat. Yeah, or just, you know, low blood sugar. So again, on the list of things we're hoping to look at in some future study, and I'm trying to find that data, would be to look at nurse visits. Because in, in talking to folks, they said, you know, sometimes kids can't tell the difference between being hungry and sick. Yeah. So, you know, kid feels low energy, they're exhausted, they can't tell they're hungry. Kids go to the nurse's office and the nurse gives them, you know, an orange juice and a healthy snack. But again, we haven't done that. There's a lot of really interesting work here to be done. Is there any last words of wisdom you want to offer about what you found or what you're planning to do as you take this type of study up to the state level? So first, what I think is important about this study is that it points to the importance of non-instructional activities in schools for students' academic success. So there was a real move to focus our attention on instruction and inside the classroom. That's what really matters, instruction. And that anything not spend on instruction in some circles was regarded as waste. So an efficient school is one where the money goes into instruction. It's clear that instruction matters and the classroom matters, but it is not just the classroom. There are things that matter to kids' success that happen in the lunchroom, that happen before they show up in the morning. And I think we spend uh, too little time and effort thinking about it. Another example, I'll tell you some of the other work that I'm doing looks at these things. I'm doing some work looking at the school bus. An awful lot of kids take a school bus to get to school. How does that work? Does it work well? Is that bringing kids to school ready to learn? There are, I'm sure, lots of examples. But this notion that what happens in the lunchroom matters to how kids do academically, I think is broader than just does universal free meals work? So that, to me, is a, an important piece of, of the lesson. Absolutely. I say probably too much, you know, look outside the classroom. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's an important point that school leaders and, and policymakers should really take to heart. Because I agree with you, there's many, many other aspects that go into learning. And they are responding to a pressure that comes and a, a focus that, that comes from outside of that to just, you know, put all the money in the classroom and put all the effort in there. And that's good work to, you know, what goes on in the classroom. But when I you know, go talk in education circles where I've spent a good amount of my career, I got a fair amount of pushback. Like, really? School lunch? 
like, what does that have to do with it? You know, that's like a, a support service. Maybe the pendulum just swung too much in toward the direction of, of the classroom and um, standing up for the lunchroom and the guidance counselor and the gym teacher and after school, you know, right. all of that other stuff. Yeah, all those things are absolutely important. I was just reading a study about the importance of guidance counselors in schools. And I think that this paper really does justice to that point. And I hope people take that point to heart when they read your study and listen to the podcast. I just want to thank you again so much. Our guest today was Amy Ellen Schwartz of Syracuse University. Thank you again for taking the time to talk to us. And I hope people really enjoy listening to the episode and reading your study. Thanks for having me. This was really terrific. Thank you for listening. This has been a production of JPAM, the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management, in conjunction with American University's School of Public Affairs. Please follow us on the APAM website and search for the JPAM podcast.